Hello, listeners. My name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. Every one of us gets up in the morning and spends time getting ready for the day. I don't think there is anyone out there that gets up in the morning and just walks out the door. How much time do all of you spend getting yourselves ready in the morning? It may be less for men to get ready in the morning, but for women, it's not a quick process. After we wash up, we have to do our hair, put on makeup, and decide what to wear that day. It is different for everyone how long it takes them to get ready in the morning, but in general, it should take you about 30 minutes up to an hour. If it takes you one hour to get ready in the morning, then in one month, it's 30 hours, and in one year, it is 365 hours that you spend getting ready in the morning. If you think of it this way, doesn't it look like you spend a long time just getting ready? No one ever thinks that this time spent getting ready is useless or a waste of time. There is no one out there that would like to walk around with messy hair that they just woke up with. We see this time spent in the morning to get ready as a given and normal. For some reason, a thought came to my mind as I walked out of the house after spending the usual amount of time getting ready. What did I do to meet God and how did I prepare to go through my day with Him? I thought that there was a possibility that I was starting my day with no preparation, no anticipation, and no thirst or longing for God. How did you start your day? Did you prepare spiritually to walk with God today? Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and
conversation with one of our listeners when they called our office. I felt sorry for them when they told me that they are so tired from living day to day, waking up at the crack of dawn to work all day just to put food on the table. It is so difficult just to make it in this world. It seems like 24 hours in a day is not enough to go out in the morning and work until late at night. Those couples that both work hard often don't have enough time together as a family. Students have to study hard through the night to get that diploma or license. We sometimes make excuses. We say to ourselves, it's not that I don't want to spend the time talking to God or looking to better my spirituality. It's just that I don't have enough time. I'm so busy that those thoughts don't even come to my mind. Even I tend to feel like this sometimes. How nice would it be to get away from the repetition of everyday life and have enough time to study the Bible and have quiet time to pray? But if I look back in my life to when I was praying and talking to God on a regular basis, it wasn't when I was free or had enough time to do all this. What do we all do when we are given this free time? Do we say, wow, I finally have some free time. I'm so thankful. Now let me read my Bible and let me pray. If I think back on my own life, I tend to rest whenever I have free time. It was actually when I had no extra time at all that I did everything in my power to take 10 or 30 minutes a day to pray to God. I remember that was when I experienced spiritual growth and had a closer relationship with God. Have any of you experienced this as well? Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, pray without ceasing. He tells us that this is God's will for us in Jesus Christ. But in reality, how can we pray without rest? 
How is it possible for us to converse with God all day? I think this is possible when we place God first in our lives. When the reason that I work, the reason that I live is not for me, but for Jesus Christ, who gave me everlasting life. It is not about reading the Bible or praying 24 hours a day, but doing the work that God entrusted us to do with all our strength and with a heart toward God. This is possible if we rely on and live our lives with God. This is why just praying before our meals and before we go to sleep is not enough. Don't all of you think that as soon as we wake up, we need to start our day giving time to God? Shouldn't we give ourselves to God as we move through the day and continue to rely on God throughout the day for our spiritual readiness? Each day, pray, confessing that you are living your day for Jesus, who gave us eternal life. Hold on to the hope to live for Jesus and not ourselves, without worrying about what to eat or what to do throughout the day. Each day, giving control of our lives to Jesus and living for Him. Do you make time in your lives to meditate on God's words? and live your life successfully, living according to Paul's words from 1 Thessalonians? Before I bring my need, I will bring my heart Before I lift my cares, I will lift my arms I wanna know you, I wanna find you In every season, in every moment Before I bring my need, I will bring my heart
Let nothing ever come before You are my treasure and my reward Let nothing ever come before I seek you Coming up next is sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is, Your Day Wasn't This Bad, Part 1, based on Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 3. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. Uh, we're going to begin a short series on the book of Zephaniah. Uh, If you have ever read through the book of Zephaniah, you know why the series is going to be short. Uh, One, it's a lot of judgment, uh, so you don't want to like sit there and live on that too long. You don't want to nurse that too long. Uh, Number two is it's a short book. It's three chapters. So go ahead and turn with me to the book of Zephaniah. Begin reading in chapter one. And I want to read verses one of chapter one through chapter two, verse three. So listen as I read. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Verse 2, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both men and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. The wicked will have only heaps of rubble when I cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all that live in Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place every remnant of, ba- of Baal, the names of the pagan and the idolatrous priest, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord, and who also swear by Melech, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of Him. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those He is invited. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the princes and the king's sons and all those clad in foreign clothes. On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple with their gods and with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will grow up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, you who live in the market district. All your merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be ruined. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are are complacent. 
who are like wine left in its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. They will build houses, but not live in them. They will plant vineyards, but they will not drink the wine. The great day of the Lord is near and coming quickly. Listen, the cry on the day of the Lord will be bitter. The shouting of the warrior there. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring distress on the people and they will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like filth. Neither their silver nor their gold will be, will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And the fire of His jealousy, the whole world will be consumed. For He will make a sudden end of all who live in the earth. Chapter 2, verse 1. Gather together. Gather together, O shameful nation, before the appointed time arrives. And that day sweeps on like chaff. Before the fierce anger of the Lord comes upon you. Before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. You who do what He commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Well, I think that we all have had bad days before. I'm sure that even as I talk about having a bad day, you're probably thinking about a specific day that you've had. Well, if you were Robert Fitzpatrick, who donated his entire life savings to Harold Camping, the civil engineer turned Bible scholar, who predicted that yesterday was going to be the end of the world, today is a bad day. See, he's been left penniless, thinking that all he needed was money to get through yesterday. So what about today? Well, I think that today is a really bad day for him. But why is it that this story about May 21st being the end of the world has gotten so much, how, how has it gotten so much traction? I mean, there have been lots of people that said the end of the world is coming. There are lots of da- people that have given dates before. Harold Camping himself has given a date before, and it waffled like this one did. So why is it? Well, I think that probably $100 million helps. That'll help make a day a big day. You can throw a pretty good party for $100 million. Lots of people will take notice. But is that it? I don't think so. I think that as we think about this day, I think that the $100 million helps. But I'm sure that there's also in us an understanding that there's enough truth to resonate with Christians and non-Christians alike, while at the same time, clearly contradicting Christ's own words in Matthew 24.36. You remember in Matthew 24.36 that we read previously a few weeks ago that no one knows the day or the time. Only the Father, not even the angels or the Son know. So it's kind of silly for us to try to specify what the day and the time is. Well, as we look at this day, this day of the Lord, this is a day that Zephaniah spoke of almost completely and entirely throughout his book. His whole message is about this day of the Lord that's coming. So if we want to understand the day of the Lord that is coming, we need to listen to what Zephaniah has to say. We will see that this day is a day of God's judgment for some. Now, friends, just bear with me. Next week, we're going to talk about the fact that it's a new day for others. There is a lot of hope that comes with the day of the Lord. But before we get to the hope, we have to be honest 
We have to have integrity with the way that we talk about the day of the Lord. We have to hear what it is that God says about this day. What God tells us is, it is a a bad day for others. Well, this morning's main point is, is the day of the Lord will be horrific for those who are not worshiping God in spirit and in truth. It's going to be a horrific day for those who are not worshiping God in spirit and in truth. But before we get there, I think that as we jump into Zephaniah, we probably need a little bit of context. I'm guessing that that some of you um, have not read Zephaniah much, if at all. And so we want to get a little bit of background as to what it is that's going on in the book of Zephaniah, where Zephaniah finds himself, so that we understand this prophecy that he gives us. Well, in verse 1, as you look at that verse that includes all of these great names, uh, what we know is, is that something's happening more than than just name dropping. In fact, what Zephaniah is doing, he's dropping some names that are kind of like context clues that tell us where he is and what's going on at that point in the history of God's people. So look in verse 1 with me. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. I want to pick out just a few of these little phrases to help us set the stage. First, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah signifies that Zephaniah is actually giving us a prophecy. When we are told in the Scriptures that the word of the Lord is coming out, what that means is is that we are receiving prophetic revelation from God and it's coming through the man Zephaniah. Not only that, we know that Zephaniah is a minor prophet. It doesn't mean that Zephaniah needs to be taken less seriously than the more important major prophets. Right? A minor prophet is simply someone who has a shorter prophecy. It's it's the size, it's the quantity of material that we have from these individuals. So Zephaniah, he's a minor prophet. And what we find is, is that he's prophesying in our text in the days of Josiah. Josiah was king of Judah during about 640 to 609 B.C. And as he was the king of Judah, uh, we know that Assyria had already taken away the northern kingdom of Israel. If you, this is a good Bible background lesson. At some point, there was a split. In 722 B.C., the northern half of that split was taken away into captivity by Assyria. And so all that was left was the southern kingdom of Judah. Now in Judah, Zephaniah has come to prophesy. And he would have been prophesying along the same time as some other prophets you see in your Bible, like Jeremiah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. And when he's prophesying, what we find is is that Zephaniah could be the last pre-exilic prophet before Babylon took Judah into captivity. Just think about the significance of this. This nation, Judah, is about to be taken off into chains. And the last word that they're going to hear from God before this happens is this prophecy from Zephaniah. King Josiah was the son of Ammon, the son of Manasseh. I think that if we understand who these guys are, we understand why Zephaniah is so hot. Ammon and his dad Manasseh, the father and grandfather to Josiah, were wicked guys. These guys, they they worshipped all kinds of idols. In fact, Manasseh was so uh, given to worshipping the idols that he even offered up some of his own children to child sacrifice for these idols. So these were a wicked people. And these are the the leaders of God's holy people, His chosen nation, Judah. 
the, the place that has the city of God, Jerusalem, and yet its king is worshiping idols, other gods, false gods. When Josiah becomes king, we know that he actually led this nation that was so steeped in idolatry towards reforming itself and becoming a God-worshipping nation. In Richard Patterson's commentary, he says, Zephaniah may well have been the Lord's catalyst for the great reformation that would sweep across the land. See, Zephaniah, he had a message from the Lord. That message was full of both despair and hope. And as we look at this message, we see that he sees clearly the corruption of the land. And Zephaniah welcomes God's justice coming and saving his people. Now, I don't know about you, but I really could use uh, some reformation in religion, and I would love to see a revival. Anybody else interested in revival? Uh, it's encouraged. Thank you. I've got some hands being shown. That's excellent. Uh, wouldn't we love to see just an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and a revival to break out? I think that we saw some glimpses of this with Josiah when Jos- I mean, uh, with Zephaniah when he came and preached this message that maybe elicited the response of uh, Josiah. And and what we hope is, is that when we think about the justice of God and Him coming back on that great and awesome day, that it's not something that turns hearts from Him, but something that prepares hearts for Him and readies us for His coming. Friends, we need to be revived. And here's, here's something that's important for us to note. Revival is not something that we engineer or manufacture as humans. Revival is and always has been something that God Himself does and creates by the power of His Word and the power of His Spirit when those two things come together in the lives of His people. And so when we read Zephaniah, let's just pray afresh that God would revive and stir in us a heart to see Jesus come back and until that day, to see people on fire for Christ. Could we pray that together? Let's just pray right now. Let's pray. Would you pray with me? God, as we look to the book of Zephaniah... This book that I'm sure many of us overlook so often. Father, we pray that you would strike in us a hunger for the return of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, what does a hunger for your Son look like but a life that is lived for the glory of your name? God, would you do this? Would you stir and strike in us a desire for this, God? Would you do this this morning, we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to look at this uh, this book and uh, we're going to get three different points. The first is this. The day of the Lord is God's response to injustice. The day of the Lord is God's response to injustice. Now, again, I'm going to promise you this book is full of hope, but it's also full of judgment. Zephaniah is warning Judah that God's coming day of judgment, this day of the Lord, is on its way and that they need to be ready for it. Zephaniah describes this day as a cataclysmic day. It's a cataclysmic day. As, as he looks at it, he says it is going to be a large-scale, violent event. And the words that he uses, they just elicit a, a sense of awe and fear. So what I want to do is just sort of look through, I want to gloss over the canvas of Zephaniah real quick and give you a picture of the word descriptions that Zephaniah gives us for this day. So that we get a picture from Zephaniah what this day is really going to look like. Well, he says in verse 8 of chapter 1 that it's the day of the Lord's sacrifice. 
If you scroll down to verse 15, he gives just a litany of descriptions. He says it's a day of wrath, distress, anguish, ruin, devastation, darkness, gloom, clouds, thick darkness. And then when you get to verse 16, he goes further and says it's a day of trumpet blast and battle cry. In other words, it's a day of war. Then when we get to verse 18, Zephaniah also calls this the day of the wrath of the Lord. When you get to chapter 2, it doesn't get better. So look at verses 2 and 3. There he twice calls this the day of the anger of the Lord. Judgment is not only cataclysmic, it is that, but but adding to the, the scope of that cataclysm is that it is universal in scope. So in verse 2 of chapter 1, if you want to scan back there, we're told that this day is a day where the Lord will utterly sweep away everything from the face of of the earth. When he says he's going to sweep it away, that word for sweep literally means that he is going to bring it to an end. It's going to come to an end. And then in verse 3 of chapter 1, we see that it's pervasive. The violence of this day is pervasive. It affects everything. In fact, if you just go down and look at all of the things that are becoming undone in, in these short verses in chapter 1, and God bringing apart all these things, What he's really saying is, do you remember creation in Genesis 1, how I created everything and put everything together? Well, now I'm I'm going back and I'm undoing and unraveling every piece of that. So that everybody, everything is affected. Man, the beast, the birds of heaven, the fish of the sea, they're all going to be brought to an end. It's also non-discriminatory. It's non-discriminatory in verse 3 where mankind is cut off from the face of the earth. And in verse 4, even though there are those who call themselves priests, they too are judged for their idolatry. So they're not excused because they were called priests. And what about God's holy people, Judah and Jerusalem? If anybody is going to be freed, if anybody is going to be spared, wouldn't it be God's chosen people? But what we're told is that even Judah and Jerusalem are judged. The nation and the city from which God promised to raise up a king that would save His people, they too are judged. So race is no shield. God's judgment is sudden in verse 18 of chapter 1. It says, In the fire of His jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end, He will make all the inhabitants of the earth. Not only is it sudden, it's relentless. Are y'all getting the picture? I mean, is this... We, we feeling this? Okay, it's, it's feeling weighty? It's weighty. It goes on and it says... Right here in in chapter 1, verse 12, that Yahweh says, after all this is done, says that He will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will He do ill. Did you consider God? I don't know how you ended up here, but is that you? In your heart? Maybe this isn't something that anybody knows. Maybe it's just between you and God. I don't know what it is that's brought you to this point. It might be that you've never really trusted that that Christ died for you. That He's your Lord and your King. Maybe this morning it's that you're you're depressed. You're struggling with depression. It seems like everything in the world that could go wrong does go wrong. And so you're sensing in your heart that God is not going to help. He's not going to do good or ill for me. I don't know what it is this morning that's brought you to that point. But I want you to know that this message is for you. 
This message is for you. If you're feeling like God is an impotent God, that He does not act, that He cannot save, that He cannot help, Zephaniah speaks to this. God speaks to this. And we want to listen to him this morning. If you're not a Christian this morning and you're here with us, I want want to welcome you. We love having non-Christians with us. We consider you to be friends that we love, that we want to hear the gospel, that we want to hear about our great God. We believe he's worth hearing about. As I'm talking about judgment, I'm sure there's probably just a little piece of you that's saying that's exactly what I would expect to hear at a Bible-believing church. That's why I usually don't go. Well, friend, if, that's your, if this is your introduction to our church, I, I apologize for that. This probably isn't the best entrance way uh, into the church. But just so you know, uh, I don't take pleasure, Christians don't take pleasure in talking about the judgment of God and other people facing the judgment of God. I think it's sick and wicked if somebody enjoys thinking about somebody suffering. In fact, as I think about the judgment of God, there is a sense of fear that I have myself, even as I speak about it, because I recognize that all of us, every person in this room, deserves the judgment of God. There's a real sense in which all of us deserve the judgment of God. We've all sinned against God. We're worthy of that same judgment. I know that as I look at my family, that, that they deserve the judgment of God just like I do. It's a little easier for me to know that I deserve it than my family. That's the reality of God's judgment. But I would also tell you that it would be really harmful and neglectful of me not to tell you about the fullness of the character of God. See, when we look to the Scriptures, we see a, a very deep God with a lot of character, a lot of attributes. And when we look at God, we want to look at Him fully. We don't want to just pick out the pieces that we like. We want to pick out all of God, put Him together, and gaze at Him with awe and wonder. That's what God's for. And we're called to reflect that God and all of His perfection and His greatness And so I don't apologize for the character of God either. I don't apologize that our God is a just God. I glory in the fact that God is a just God. Glory 
You are now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. Download the app for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, available on Play Store and App Store. You can now listen to this week's or past week's programs on your Androids or iPhones. Just search for Heart and Soul to find it in the store. If you have any questions, please call us at 602-866-8999 or heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. That's H-E-A-R-T-A-N-D-S-E-O-U-L dot org at gmail.com. Following is a program on the Sermon on the Mount. Hello, listeners. This is Brian Winston, your host with the Sermon on the Mount. We have spent the last eight weeks studying Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember who Jesus considered blessed? The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those who were persecuted for righteousness' sake are blessed. These are the characteristics of a person who has been saved and participate in God's kingdom. Jesus said that those who possess these characteristics and believe in him as the Savior will not be welcomed or praised in the real world, but be met with persecution. In addition, he added that those who are met with persecution are blessed. Are there any of you that are hesitant to become closer to God or learn more about Him because you're afraid of being persecuted? Once you understand why Jesus called the persecuted blessed, you will let go of those concerns and become closer to Him. We are afraid of the words persecution and hardship, but Jesus teaches us why we will be persecuted and how we should respond to the persecution and what he will be doing while we are being persecuted. The scripture we will be learning today deals with the eighth beatitude from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Let's read Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The first seven Beatitudes concentrated on the inner characteristics of believers who are blessed by saying those who are or those who do. On the other hand, the Eighth Beatitude concentrates on the persecution of the blessed rather than their characteristics or way of life. In addition, in verse 10, those who have been persecuted is written in the third person like the first seven of the Beatitudes. But in verse 11, when people insult you, persecute you, you are blessed is written in the second person. Jesus did this to show his disciples that they will be persecuted for spreading his word and believing in him. Jesus is also showing us who are part of God's kingdom 
in learning about the Beatitudes through Scripture, that we will also be persecuted. Jesus said, You will be persecuted by the people of this world. Why did Jesus say we will be persecuted? Based on verses 10 and 11, we will be persecuted for the sake of righteousness and for living our lives through Jesus. When we live our lives according to Jesus, living by His words, the world will persecute us for being different from them. Why does the world persecute us for living by Jesus' words? Jesus said in John chapter 15, Because the world hates me. Let's read John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So why does the world hate Jesus? This is because Jesus and His Holiness points out the sins and evils of the world. The story of Stephen in the book of Acts is a good example of how the world hates Jesus and how they persecute the ones who try to spread His words. All of you probably know the story of the death of Stephen. Stephen spoke the words of Jesus to everyone, and there were some people that did not like this at all. They brought him to the high priest and falsely accused him of blasphemy. When asked if this was true by the high priest, he preached to them and said, You are the ones that killed our prophet Jesus. How do you think the ones who falsely persecuted Stephen reacted? In Acts 7.54 it says that after hearing Stephen's words, they were furious with guilt and began gnashing their teeth at him. They didn't want to repent of their sins, but they were angry with him and finally stoned him to death. This is an example of how the people of the world reacted when hearing the truth about Jesus. The world hated Jesus because the world's sins and evils are shown through him. That is why they falsely accused Jesus of blasphemy and crucified him on the cross. And Stephen, not being part of the world, but living through Jesus, was hated and persecuted as well. The fact that we are being persecuted by the world means that we are living our lives through Jesus Christ. It shows that we are part of God's kingdom and disciples of Jesus. In Philippians, it states that the persecution we receive from the world is evidence that we have salvation through Jesus. It is also evidence of defeat for those who persecute us. That is why the ones who live through Jesus Christ, being persecuted by the world, are blessed. They are not part of this world, but part of God's kingdom, and theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For that reason, we should be happy and joyful. This is how we should react to the hate and persecution of this world. Even though we are met with lies, false accusations, and hateful words because we follow Jesus, we should be happy and joyful that we are blessed. For our reward in heaven is great. The hate and persecution that we feel now is nothing compared to the glory and reward that we will receive in heaven. 
After Jesus said that we should be happy and feel blessed when we receive persecution from this world, he said, For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The prophets before you also means that the prophets before Jesus' birth were persecuted by the world. The prophets were those who spoke the importance of repentance of sin. They spoke of God's holiness and the meaning of his words and were met with hate and persecution from the people of the world. Did the disciples who were listening to these words from Jesus really feel the hate and persecution from the world? After Jesus was resurrected and ascended to heaven, the disciples who became apostles were really met with hate and persecution, just like he said. The apostles spread the words of Jesus, performing miracles with the Holy Spirit, but were either put in jail or whipped. As Jesus said, the apostles were full of joy to be spreading his words. Acts chapter 5 verse 41 says, So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. The same disciples that were listening to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount were the disciples who were met with persecution from the world but remained blessed and full of joy to be spreading his words. All of the disciples lived by Jesus' words and teachings until they passed away and left the world for the promised kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard the Sermon on the Mount, did they really believe that they would be going through all of the persecution from the world? Did they really believe that they would be able to meet all the persecution with happiness and joy? They probably didn't. We might be going through the same emotions as the disciples went through. But as we live through the Holy Spirit and as disciples of Jesus, He will slowly mold us into the disciple He wants us to be. Even now, there are people that are being persecuted or even killed for believing in Jesus. Even where we live, people are treated unfairly or met with criticism just for the act that they believe in Jesus. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus spoke of what would happen at the end of the world and said, You will be met with persecution from the world for living through me. When we are met with such hate and persecution from the world, we should try to remember, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This ends today's lesson on the Eighth Beatitude. Next time, we will be learning about how we, as disciples of Jesus, should live in the world by the eight Beatitudes taught by Jesus. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us again as we continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Turning with thee.
Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, not forever wilt be.
How do we live our lives with God, the one who has given us permission to live our lives today? Do you start your day with no preparation of showing your love and longing for God? Are you placing God behind all the other things in your life, making excuses that you have no time or that you are just too busy? David confesses in Psalms chapter 63 verses 1 to 2. O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. I hope that all of us live our daily lives seeking our Savior, like seeking water in a dry and weary land. I pray that we live our lives successfully, holding on to our God, who has made us His children and gave us eternal life. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I hope to meet all of you again next week. Have a wonderful week, and God bless. Glory to your name. Hallelujah. Glory to your name. Come on, let's worship him. Hallelujah. Come on, he's worthy, he's worthy. Lord, we just thirst, we hunger for more of you, Jesus.
Glory to your name, Jesus. 